you're listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast UK, melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders in the UK. I'm James Bryce, I help connect businesses with technical talent, and today, I'm your host. In today's episode, we'll be discussing future of cybersecurity. I'm fortunate enough to be joined by a fantastic panel, so let's kick off with some introductions. Ollie, do you want to kick us off first? Hi, my name is Holly Gross Williams, and I break into computers for a living. I think that's the <laughs> shortest introduction you need. I work <laughs> Absolutely. In the penetration testing space, as people can presume. But yeah, I uh, am bringing offensive security to this podcast today. That'll be my fault. Yeah, no, glad to hear. Okay, great. And Mansha? Yeah, uh, my name is Mansha Youssef. I'm the CISO at uh, CDL Software. Um, I have a, a master's in digital forensics uh, and a postgrad MBA. So I'm a well rounded, generalistic. Uh, uh, Information security, cybersecurity person. Yeah, no, brilliant to it. And Rob? Hi, Rob Horn. I'm currently a principal consultant for Trustwave. And uh, after a long and very career, I kind of mostly concentrate now in trying to help uh, senior level leaders, uh, board members in understanding what cybersecurity is and what they need to know about it and how to protect the business. Yeah, brilliant. And finally, Nick? Yeah, Nick Jones. I'm the CISO at TUI. Um, I think my probably my passion is transformation. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that's probably what I've spent the most of my career doing is, is transformation. Yeah, great. Now we've done with the introductions, let's kick off with some questions. So Holly, your question to the panel was, what effect will machine learning have on cybersecurity? So Holly, if you could provide some context around your question, please. I'll absolutely provide context and it's probably <laughs> not what you're expecting. Um, Effectively, every year I get asked, what, what do you think is the new thing for cybersecurity? What do you think is going to happen within the next 12 months? And I think for about the last 10 years, I've been saying essentially nothing is going to change. I usually give some sarcastic answer like ransomware has been a problem since 1989. Next year's big problem is going to be ransomware. But recently, with uh, my job focusing more on uh, machine learning and how it can benefit offensive security, this is an area that I do think uh, is going to see some change over the next few years. I think everyone's probably seen machine learning on the defensive side, but I think I'm going to add some comments on, on the offensive side. So yeah, uh, why I wanted to add this question was because I think it is actually finally um, maybe something new. Yep, brilliant. Uh, Mansha? Yeah, I, I'm going to add to just just echo what Holly said. I think machine learning is 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 one of these pieces of of jigsaw puzzles for software engineering or information security or cyber security that's really going to take it to the next level especially for offensive security it's just like saying um you're going to get have a computer do some part of your work just to learn stuff automatically do stuff uh, uh keep an eye there's already softwares out there like dart trace and, and and various other softwares that do some of these machine learnings and algorithms it's just basically going to give offensive security a bit of an edge try and find what any holes that are it'll be you know it'll just automatically find these items and try and expose them as quick as possible so a lot of the basically spotlight will be on defenders like myself generalistic people that understand security and and have to put up with the the, the quickness of pace from machine learning and obviously the software that i've used internally uh at cdl and other places uh, generally is is slower than what the attackers can use and machine learning will give them an extra edge so i think this really focuses uh issues on on developers on 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 people that provide this software, uh, people that uh, look at the processes and procedures and ensure that you are, are fully looking at uh, machine learning and understanding what benefits you get and, and honestly the downside of it as well. Um, I think it's definitely going to be a problem for people like myself in the coming future um, and, and, and definitely want to uh, watch out for. Brilliant. And just pointing me to Rob, uh, Holly, I think you've got some to input there. Mancha, thank you very much. You absolutely pointed out the thing that I think machine learning is going to uh, bring for the offensive side of things. 
speed for all of those companies who have uh, manual hooks in their response process. If your SOX protocol is to call the management team when bad things happen, speed, we're going to beat you with machine speed attacks. So yeah, that was, I just wanted to highlight that. I think you absolutely <laughs> nailed it. Yeah, brilliant. And Rob? Yeah, interesting you say about uh, machine learning being used for defense and whether it can be used for attack. Is it already? Um, because cause a lot of these things, it, it's a tool and what you use it for depends on what you're trying to, to do with it. So a, is it being used out already? Um, algorithms, uh, would we say that the likes of Facebook are using them to uh, take away from people's privacy? Um, is that an attack? So you're absolutely right. They're, they're going to be used in different ways and uh, against uh, on both sides, against one against the other. And I, kind of, I think I might have watched too many sci-fi films, but I'm starting to think we can have machines on one side and machines on the other fighting each other and we'll just stand back and watch. But, uh, which is sounds a bit daft, but I don't think that in years to come, that might not be too far from the truth, I think. Yeah, but you might be on some of that, Rob. <laughs> and finally, Nick? Yeah, I, I, was, I was listening to um, a presentation the other day and, and they were talking about we're being attacked by humans and machines and our defence is going to have to be a, a combination of humans and machines. And I, I think, you know, in, from a defence perspective, that's definitely right. And Holly, your, your comment about speed... Um, you know, the attacks are coming in faster and faster. And if we're not um, automating uh, that, you know, I think I think that's really um, going to become a problem. And I think, you know, the other side to it is as we become more serverless, more more of an attack surface that grows, you can't just monitor your service. Um, you know, you've got to have some kind of intelligence that's going on in that extended ecosystem. Um, and, and that's perhaps where um, we may need to be more offensive and, and actually be on the lookout, be searching for uh, strange um, patterns. And I know there's a little bit of that, but I think we've really got to get to the next level um, as, as we move forward. Okay, thanks, Nick. And um, thank you, Ollie, for that question. We've got some lovely insight there. So next up, we have Manshaw's question, uh, which is, what effect will quantum computing have on cybersecurity? So Manshaw, if you could provide some context around this question, please. Um, so basically, I think what Holly's mentioned with the machine learning, that's short to medium term. It's what's happening now in the next couple of years. When I thought about, obviously, the future of cybersecurity, I want a bit longer. Mine may be medium to long term. I know people like Amazon and Google have had uh, uh, quantum computing within their uh, remits, and, and you can include in IBM that are better than the supercomputers of this age. Uh, but my my question was more to see in the long-term future, 10, 15 years when, you know, when I'm retired and I'm sat there and I'm watching and laughing at those people doing it at that time and say, look, it was a bit easier in my time. What's going to happen? So quantum computing is something that I, it's it's something that interests me a lot. It's something that I think is going to really be quick pace and it just makes machine learning. It sits on top of machine learning because not just will it affect the, the speed that we work up, the, the crypto, crypto that we're using, you know, it'll be able to crack all of that. Things that can be, that are currently registered to do in over 100 years, maybe 200 years, maybe be able to be doing seconds. So obviously you've got to understand what the processes and, and procedures are within this side. Um, and I think, that, you know, part of quantum computing is also quantum internet. And I think Amazon is looking at saying that just as a, as a single entity of a computer, how can you get then get that over the internet and be able to talk to two items? And this is where I think Rob's question or Rob's uh, comment really, really puts it in focus, really, you know, with quantum computing around the corner, when I say around the corner, 20 years isn't a long time in, in relative terms. Um, you know, when that happens, it is going to be one computer trying to defend against another computer, along with human interface and, and human interaction. But I think that's that's where my question is born out from. It's what's after machine learning and what's going to be the, the well, I won't say near future, but some kind of future. Yeah, brilliant. And Rob? Yeah, it, it's a fascinating area. Um, 20 years, a lot can change in 20 years. If you think back 20 years from where we are now. 
Uh, it's totally different. Uh, but it, quantum computing is something that's been talked about for a long time. Um, we're, we're making tiny steps towards achieving it. Uh, biggest issues, you say, uh, I think for me, is the uh, whether it will negate all the crypto that we have in place now. Uh, will it just speed up? Um, things so will we have a, a one side uh, quantum computers decrypting and the other side will be uh, computers re-encrypting in a different way and and they're constantly battling uh, in the space of nanoseconds encrypt decrypt encrypt decrypt something like that um, or will we find some way that, that that speed and that ability to to do so many calculations uh, in parallel is something uh, do we find something that uh, but that's not going to help some other method out there that's that's not going to uh, to be able to uh, have any difference or have any effect on it. So, yeah, quantum computing is a fascinating era. It's going to make changes. I, I like to be optimistic and say that the change it's going to make is not going to affect the security in the long term because we'll just come up with new methods that don't rely on what quantum computing is uh, is going to uh, affect. Yeah, brilliant. And just before we move to Nick, uh, Manshaw, I think you wanted just to make a quick point. Yeah, I was just going to uh, add a few, uh, well, one point on there. It's it, I don't think it's it's just the security that's going to be affected. I think it's something that Nick said earlier, it's the process, uh, or, or maybe Holly mentioned it, it's the process, uh, especially if you're in a SOC. If quantum computing is moving at a pace that humans can't keep up with, your SOC processes are just going to fail. Uh, it, as, as someone mentioned on the call before, if you've got a major incident and you have to ring your directors or, or someone above you, by the time you've rang someone, that major incident at this present moment might take, you know, someone, a lateral movement might take a, a, a couple of days or, or, or maybe hours or, or, or longer than that. Whereas if you're working on, on supercomputers or, sorry, uh, on, on, on computers with quantum mechanics behind them, you're moving at lightning speed. So things that they can do are going to be affecting more. Uh, so I think, I think one of the biggest challenges is 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 employee understanding of uh, what cybersecurity is and how they are better uh, versed in in doing stuff with with, with the kind of stuff that well, with quantum computing. Okay, great. And Rob, just want to quickly interject? Yeah, absolutely agree. There, uh, it's going to affect a lot of things. Uh, you imagine uh, quantum networking, uh, where you're connecting to millions of things all simultaneously. Uh, we're verging on the sort of um, the kind of time travel thing, because if quantum connections are instantaneous, uh, with, with the time it takes to defend against something, it doesn't matter how quick we are, if the, the attacker using some sort of quantum methodology is able to instantaneously attack in multiple different ways or multiple different paths. So it's going to be fun, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Absolutely, and Nick. I think you're on uh, mute, Nick. Oh, sorry. No I, I'm I'm hoping um, I'm hoping I'm retired by then. I'm not so sure it's <laughs> going to be fun. I think it's going to be quite terrifying. Um, and I, you know, Rob, I think your point about the interconnect interconnected nature uh, of of the ecosystem and um, how quickly things can come across that kind of network um, and 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 attack. You know, I think traditionally security's been behind the attackers and if we're not going to get in front of the attackers on this particular one i think we're um, going to be in a lot of trouble yeah yep. brilliant i'm finally holly i've got just two really quick points to make on this i think mm -hmm. very often when people think about future technology so things like quantum we immediately fall into science fiction like oh anything could happen but one of the big things is we know the areas of research for quantum, right? It's not like suddenly in 20 years we'll have quantum computers and people will be thinking, oh, what on earth do we do with these? We're currently researching them. So the most uh, direct and, and likely immediate effect of quantum computing is going to be the fact that uh, the way that current 
encryption technology works would be brokered by quantum cryptography using Shaw's algorithm. That is something that we're currently researching. So there's academics out there who are looking into post-quantum cryptography. So if quantum is something new to you and you're thinking, wow, we have in 20 years, you know, we'll have all of these new things. Actually, that research is, is being conducted now. Uh, and also, I just wanted one very quick thing. When people think, oh, a lot can change in 20 years. Well, 21 years ago, Windows XP was released. So that became available in October of uh, 2001. So if you imagine that that year, everybody was upgrading and checking out the new systems. So if you think of uh, all the way back to the first time you got hands on Windows XP, that is the level of development that we're talking about. <laughs> That's brilliant. And Mansha? Just Sorry, I just wanted something that Holly mentioned before that you're coming across this as an offensive rather than defensive uh, um, item. Generally, obviously, with the uh, with the inception of cloud, and everyone knows Amazon will be probably one of the first when quantum computing or machine learning or whatever we we, we call the future of cybersecurity to release it first. Whereas obviously, as as Nick said, cybersecurity firms and businesses will be slow. How will we cope with something like that? Sorry, a side question to a lot because obviously. You know the attackers will always be ahead of us. So obviously, you know someone like Microsoft or AWS or Google, once they start releasing them in their data centers, you'll be, you know, you'll you'll be multiple steps behind. Because although we're researching, you know, the algorithms and encryption, if we're not ahead of them or pre-plan these items, we just it's going to be a slaughterhouse there. Well, what's your reaction to what are your, what are your thoughts on that, especially being in the from the pen tested background? Because that's an interesting uh, aside for myself. Yeah, Holly, you have a talk? Uh, they already have. Um, AWS already has off the shelf machine learning services. And I can give you an example of where we can use these offensively. Uh, if you imagine, if you gain access to an organization's network, one of the things you might want to do is steal uh, personal information. Now, stealing PII is actually a more complicated process than people think it is because there's thousands and thousands of files on an organization's network. So how do we quickly categorize them to say, okay, these ones include PII? And one of the ways of doing that is through things like um, optical character recognition and natural language processing. And AWS already has off-the-shelf services that can do those kinds of things. So during uh, offensive security testing, in particular, network propagation, and uh, data loss demonstrations, we are already using machine learning. So yeah, if, if people are thinking this is future as in, uh, you know, 10 years away, as you made the point already, Mancha, it's not. It's the it's the short and medium term future. Brilliant. And um, we'll finish with Rob for this question. Yeah, I just want to come back on Holly's point there uh, about the machine learning to identify personal records. Now, to me, uh, I would take the sort of intuitive human kind of approach to say, I'm looking for a HR database. Doesn't matter what records, I'm looking for something which encapsulates what my target is. And I don't know whether machine learning is able to do that or whether it, it would, I'm sure, be able to do that, but whether that's how it would function now. And uh, and just, yeah, I, I can remember Windows XP and I can also remember Windows 3.1 coming out. So uh, that puts me in the, the ancient things. And, and if you look back, you know, my career stretches decades back and I look back and think the things that we said then had no idea uh, there was no idea what we'd have now, you know, code as a service, cloud computing, SD-WAN, all that kind of stuff, which is all simple and straightforward when you think about it. But decades ago, nobody had any idea. So we we do have to, I think, do this kind of blue sky thinking just because anything could happen. And we've seen so much happen. So we need to be thinking about it, preparing it, researching it as it gets a little closer, as we've said. But uh, we we shouldn't stop throwing science fiction ideas out there because they could be reality in uh, in 20 years' time. And Holly? <laughs> very quickly to answer that question, uh, two ways we can use machine learning. Uh, one of the things it's very, very good at is data classification. So if you get a whole bunch of passports, for example, and show it to a machine learning engine and then say, find me things that look like this, it's very good at that kind of work. Uh, so that works for uh, passports, birth certificates, utility bills, all of those things that contain PII. And then secondarily, 
uh, a much simpler approach is very often some of these documents have terms on them that are um, rarely used in other places. So, for example, if I'm using something like um, optical character recognition, I might just tell it, look for the phrase national insurance number or NI number because I want to review all of those documents. Or one that I've been using to great success recently is superintendent registrar. Not a phrase you use ever, it's written on birth certificates. So if you mm. find me a file that has that phrase on it, it's probably a birth certificate. So yeah, that that's just an example of how we use it, how it works uh, directly. Yeah, that, that, that's good to say, James. But um, I kind of characterise that as you're looking for what makes a tree and, and a different approach is what does the forest look like? And, I, and it's interesting to compare those two approaches to see which one works best. Yeah, no, thank you for that question, Manshaw. Got some good discourse from that. So we'll move on to the third question, which is Rob's question, uh, which reads as, will there be a need for a global internet police force in the future? So Rob, I'm looking forward to this. If you could provide some context around this question, please. Oh, just set me up for a fall there. Uh, <laughs> I, I was thinking because we uh, traditionally, uh, everything worked on, on a regional country basis. We're starting to see a little bit of the um, regulatory uh, landscape become more than regions. It's becoming a bit more global. Uh, criminals are operating at a global level. Uh, but on the defence side, are we doing that to... Uh, if I'm attacked, uh, my network's attacked by somebody from Russia, I have to go through UK police, which might have to go through Interpol, which might have to go somewhere else. Do we need something that takes that global view and says we don't, that the internet is not territorial anymore, it's one thing, and therefore we need one way of uh, policing it? Yeah, brilliant. And Nick? Yeah, interesting. You know, when, when um, I was thinking back to the um, Ukraine crisis when it kicked off and um, I was talking to some of our suppliers and saying, you know, what, what are you seeing? What are you concerned about? Um, and there was a discussion about the, the Chinese were hacking into the telco networks and looking for location-specific data. Um, and just, just around about that time, two mayors got picked up uh, by the Russians in Ukraine. And I wondered to what extent there was nation-state collaboration going on. And if that kind of thing is going to start happening, um, you know, we're going to have to be more global in, in, um, in, the, in nature for our our offensive um, security, because I think it's going to have to be more offensive in, in that space. So, yeah, I think I think collaboration um, is is a big thing that's going to be a you know we're going to need to do that. We whether it's within our industries and with our competitors, you know, um, we're going to have to be share more. Um, this is not a competitive advantage, um, and I think the same goes to to policing um, and and working in the supply side as well. Um, I think all of those things um, are going to have that element of collaboration and we're going to have to trust people um, and it's it's going to be uncomfortable. Brilliant. And Holly? Uh, just something when we're talking about, uh, in particular, nation-state hackers, since uh, Nick mentioned them then, something that frustrates me a great deal when people discuss nation-state hackers is they talk about them as if it's a single kind of attacker. So you'll, you'll hear people say, you know, um, script kiddies, cyber criminals and nation-state hackers. So you imagine that as three categories. But to give you an example, you could have um, state-backed, state-sponsored, and state-sanctioned. And the difference here is, is it the state putting this team together and telling them what to attack? Is it a state simply funding these attacks? Or is it a state who simply don't care that these attacks are taking place? So that could be, uh, if, as long as you're attacking another country, we won't care and our police won't enforce any action against you. And the capabilities of those teams, what they can do and what they can get away with is uh, greatly different. 
So if you're doing threat modeling and you're trying to work out uh, the kinds of groups that your organization might be targeted by, don't put nation-state attackers all into one big pile because that that isn't the case. Brilliant. I'm finally man-sharp. Um, I was going to say, well, I was thinking about this uh, uh, just before the podcast. Um, I definitely did. It. I think there's a, a need for an internet police of some co- uh, uh, some 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 type some, uh, some somewhere, but I just don't know how it happened. Um, there's a there's a comment that Rob made before, or, or a word that uses territorial. I think that's going to be the issue all the time. This is why we've still got issues with general items. You know, people. You know, you sit in the UN and you discuss stuff, and, and it, you know, people tend to do stuff to try and, you know, look at Ukraine, no one seems to be really intervening because it causes bigger problems. I think that's, that'll, that'll be the same with the, uh, the internet. When does the wider world have authority to stop someone to do something? I think that's going to be the biggest challenge of having something like internet police. I definitely agree there's something there and we need to do something about it. Maybe similar to when GDPR came out for the UK and Europe, tighten some of the rules and regulations, uh, make it more focused. But again, big businesses like Twitter or Facebook or Google itself are not going to want to be policed by a generalised, obviously, uh, over-function, but you may say someone like, you know, Interpol has additional uh, functions in there that give you maybe a bit more stern, st- well, sterner telling down or or maybe, maybe, I don't know, in the US, like, you know, the, the capital, uh, they occasionally bring, bring in Google or, or Facebook and they question them. Um, I agree, definitely there's a need for it. I just don't understand or I can't fathom how you'd achieve something like that and where you'd get the consensus. I think that'd be the biggest uh, uh, stepping stone or the biggest hurdle for this. I think once it's over that, you could probably get something, someone or a set of people from, similar like a UN, but sat there to look at the internet and understand the issues, cyber warfare, cyber crime, you know, what what, what can you attack, what can you attack type thing, you know, and what, what's doable, what isn't. Because, you know, until that's and until people sit down and, 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 and you know, talk about it, I think it's always just going to be one of these things there where it's territorial. We'll do what we do. If we need a help, we'll come over and ask you. And if you can't help, we'll do what we like. Brilliant. Yeah, and I think Bob, you had another point, did you? <laughs> yeah, I'm glad somebody came up with the, uh, is it ever going to work? Because I thought, I'm not going <laughs> to answer that. <laughs> I don't know. But I just want to go back to Holly's point about the, the nation state attackers, which, which is exactly right. Uh, and it occurred to me where you had um, in the past a uh, one government uh, supported another government for providing them with uh, military weapons. So we could have like NSA supplies a, uh, a country with, um, say, for, say, for example, South Korea with hacking tools. And then something happens and then South Korea is no longer a friendly nation, but they've got the hacking tools. So that, it, again, it's very similar to the situation we see in the past. It's just new things being involved. So I think, um, yeah, I think uh, although we, we're doing our uh, sci-fi future gazing, uh, a lot of these situations have come up in different uh, scenarios in the past. And it's as well to understand the history of things as well as look to the future. Absolutely. And Holly? Uh, that, of course, has happened. So this idea that um, offensive capability is developed and then it's uh, lost, the capability is lost to somebody who we, who we don't uh, trust or don't like, uh, that was Eternal Blue. That was the Shadow Brokers uh, disclosure. The NSA developed a capability and that capability was stolen. And Eternal Blue had a huge impact on, on the world economy. So yeah. Uh, yeah, again, like great point from, from Rob there, but people don't be thinking this is 20 years away. Uh, that has already happened uh, back in 2017. So this is in fact now old news. I couldn't remember the, the details, but yeah. And, and then we go back to look at, you know, I said, like the military equipment. We had uh, the US giving weapons to Afghanistan and then became an unfriendly nation. So it's um, you you need some, ideally, some sort of, you know, what mistakes that you, well, I think you do today may be a mistake tomorrow. So is that something that could be policed? I think it needs to be policed, but could it? I have no idea. <laughs> And Mancha. I was going to say, I just wanted to add to the point you just made, Rob, about uh, um, that unfriendly nations once, obviously, they get the equipment. This is a very, uh, you know, I, I 
again, another talking point. Missiles are, are obviously and bombs and weapons are one type of weapon, but I think using the internet, you could use, you know, I think you could do a lot more destabilization of countries and, and just, just get more out of it. I think it's, it's, that, it's that secret espionage of, 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 of doing something. Whereas military, you know, and everyone in the world can see it. Whereas with obviously with the, with the internet and, and items like this, I think definitely a police force should be looked at. What, what can you do? It's that sneak under the hood type thing and what you can do. You saw it, in, I believe, in, in the US recently, or when I say recently, you know, it could be in the last five years, uh, where the people have gone in and, and uh, hacked uh, utilities, you know, and, and it's that kind of stuff. And, and I believe uh, many years ago, Saudi Aramco had something different, similar to that when people came in, someone plugged a virus in. I know that was a manual thing, they plugged a USB, but it's a similar kind of thing. You're attacking infrastructure where it may take longer, you can hold someone to ransom, and it's sneakily done. And it's not just nation states that can do this, it's, it's more, they basically, every man and his dog type thing, if you've got the skills that you can do this. Whereas if arms and weapons, and when we're discussing that, that's going to be just a country. So I think definitely this, this is probably more of an issue to the world. Um, because you know, uh, um, it's like it's like that stray gun. You know, I mean, you don't, you know, if if you're not trained to do something, you do something. You know, you, you, it's like you, you shoot straight uh, a gun; the bullet can go anywhere. Similarly, this, if you don't know how to really use these kind of tools, you're gonna have more effect on something and and and, and give cause more problems. Ready to take a man shot, and Rob? Yeah, I, I was just gonna add to that. When we had uh, at the end of lockdowns, when we had a shortage of tanker delivery drivers and all fuel stations running out of fuel, that was exactly like a. Uh, uh, critical natural infrastructure attack although it was caused by something different but the effect was exactly the kind of thing that we would see so hopefully that's woken some people up well i think one thing we have learned is that i think the four of you would be great to head up this global internet police force anyway so no thank you for that question rob and we'll end with nick's question uh, which is with increasing supply chain disruption and api connections growing exponentially how will security teams cope with securing the extended ecosystem? So, Nick, if you could provide some context for this question, please. Yeah, I guess as we as we listen to all the other questions and you think about those things, we're operating in a more and more connected world. Um, you know, whether it's 5G, whether it's APIs that are connecting us up, you know, it's not just third parties, it's fourth parties, fifth parties, sixth parties. You don't even know that they exist necessarily in your ecosystem. So, you know, how do you even define your, your ecosystem and how do you then start to protect it? There's a lot more code, a lot more serverless, things spin up, things spin down. Um, you know, I think you can only protect what you know. Um, and I think it's becoming increasingly hard to know what you need to protect um, and, and what's the extent of your ecosystem. When you had a bunch of servers in a, in a data center, it was very clear what you were protecting. Now I think it's going to be a lot harder, and that I think that's just going to increase um, with all of that connectivity. So, yeah, that I, I'm I'm um, that that's one of the things on my mind as we as we look forward is is how do we keep ahead of of protecting that? And you know we've got terms like XDR and stuff, but it's kind of still a, a little too fluffy. Hey, thanks, Dick and Holly. Uh, let me complain about. Microsoft Excel, but also tie into supplier security. Uh, one of the things that we have to do as a, a security provider uh, to work with customers, very often they, they require us to fill in uh, supplier security questionnaires. So they'll send us over a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet with 150 questions where we have to answer arbitrary things. Everything from do you have an asset register to do your servers run antivirus? Uh, and I hate these things because they are written, generally speaking, in such a way that they expect a certain answer. And if you're doing something different, like, for example, as mentioned earlier, using cloud, in particular, if you're cloud native, Nick just mentioned serverless. Um, we use serverless and we also use autoscaling. So when a customer asks us things like, how many servers do you have? My answer can only be, it depends on what time of day it is. If it's a weekend, very few servers. If it's a Monday morning, more. 
Um, so yeah, I think Nick's point about uh, the fact that what you have as an organization is changing is very, very important, but also in particular when it comes to supplier security. If you are auditing your suppliers on how they are achieving security goals, don't make assumptions on how they're doing it because they might not be. And also expect that your suppliers are going to be doing new things using cloud, being cloud native, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, and I think it it is a good thing. One of the reasons that we use auto scaling is it makes our systems more resilient. If a server goes down, the system can handle that automatically. In particular, we use chaos engineering, but that, that's a nerdy thing not to get into here. But yeah, a great question from Nick. And I think, um, please, if everybody could stop sending me supplier security questionnaires, <laughs> I'd, I'd love that. And then just before we move into Manshard, Nick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the sooner we can get rid of those, the, the better. Um, they tick a box, they don't do much else. The sooner we get to collaborating um, and and jointly securing our ecosystems, um, you know, the, the, the better. And, and you know what, you know, when we collaborate, we'll have a much better understanding of what that ecosystem is. So back back to my point, it's going to be a lot easier. So yeah, great, uh, great point, Holly. Thanks. Yeah, good stuff. And Mansha? So I just want to uh, um, uh, mention about the the actual uh, Excel spreadsheet before actually going to my answers. The reason that is because that's a compliance activity and it's a lack of understanding. And in no disrespect, compliance is a massive uh, avenue for information security that has to happen. But I'm going to give you the example of saying, you know, you, you might get a question, as you said, uh, you know, do you have firewalls? Yes, fantastic. It's a tick box. Why are they configured? Does anyone manage them? Uh, have you got any firewalls? Exactly. Yeah, it's a tick box. Yes, I've got a firewall. Fantastic. Nice. I've got a front door, but it's never locked. You know, it doesn't make a difference. And that's what these are because you've got compliance people uh, that do governance and risk or, or GRC function that is really uh, not get support from security because as you know, and I'm one of these, but I don't like doing writing. I want to do the technical work and that's it. I don't want to be doing that as, as well. You know, Holly's laughing there, you know, so it's, it's one of these things you don't want to. So that's just a side note there. I think that's one thing that it has to be better from our side as well to make sure that we are understanding what compliance want and, and doing this in a, in a better manner than just sending Excel spreadsheets so we can get better synergies in that area. To answer the question, so what, what I wanted to answer in, in, in regards to Nick's question was, um, yes, the extended ecosystem. Um, Obviously, as you said, 10 years ago, uh, or less than that, we, we knew you had a data center, you knew what was there, everything was locked, uh, you know, and, and, you know, barcoded and everything, you knew what it is. The extended e ecosystem doesn't go just beyond APIs and supply chains. We're working from home. And I had this question and, and I was talking about it, I was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago before we, you know, this podcast was announced is, when does it get to the fact that, you know, that we have to go around and explain to people how to uh, configure the Virgin Media Router? Because if, if your systems are, are fine, but someone is listening on your home Virgin Media Router and they manage to do the stuff that you want, you know, Nick's, uh, you know, he's, he's thinking about it now, thinking when do you know? But the thing is, that's that's the extended e ecosystem. What is your limit? And I think that's the biggest question: is where's your boundary? And the thing is, it's like not just plugging your home USB uh, printer in. It's is it's it's making sure that if I was a hacker, and, you know, forensically, I'm, I'm sure Holly will, will will correct me on this. That's what I'd say. I'd sit, I'd sit at my home. I'm pointing my router for some reason. I'm not like, no one can see me. I'm sorry. Yeah, but um, I, I, my home router, that's what I'd sit. I'd sit there with my listening device and understand what's coming out of the network and see where your passwords are. And, and that's what I'd be looking to get into someone's uh, machine. And everyone knows that most home routers are not going to be secure to a level that they, you know, your work ones are, are secure to you. So, yeah, definitely something that, again, you know, uh, uh, really keeps me up at night you know i mean my lack of sleep is because of these items but you know definitely you know something that uh, is is going to be wider but again it's, it's that discussion of where do we where do we uh, hold the boundaries and how do you discuss the boundaries and say look this is a responsibility and anything else is, is going to be something else you know and whatever that else might be we'll have to discuss that in a in a future thing <laughs> thank you for that passionate answer Manshaw and rob yeah i think we kind of have two questions here um because we're, we're looking at compliance so we're measuring uh, other parties, third parties against a, a standard. And 
yeah, most of those standards, like 27,001, which is about to be updated, but a lot of them were written several years ago when there was other technology that's out there now didn't exist. So, and yeah, somebody that's not only had to fill them in, but then had to review them when they come back. Uh, I can tell you that an awful lot of stuff is never read. I've, I've put things like, this is a silly question. Why are you asking me? And not got a response. So, so they're not read. And again, they say, do you have 27,001? Yeah, tick. And then I'm going to ask you, another 150 questions about it as well so why are you asking you're duplicating the effort here uh yeah they are a pain i i would like to address that through some kind of um regulatory approach so they the standard a good standard i think the government tried to come up with cyber essentials which was a kind of a basic sme you know, five six things you should do um but because it's a uh self-assess it's not ideal in a long in many cases so should there be a regulation that says you as a supplier of services digital services you must comply with this and then there is an independent body that audits and then those results could be shared uh, amongst everyone so that would cut down all those questionnaires you don't have to do it once uh, and the other question is even when you've got all that assurance in place and it looks like they're doing everything right you still need to protect your data uh, so do we go for kind of a zero trust data model where your data is encrypted before we get the quantum computing in, uh, but your data is encrypted so that your suppliers can't see it, but then they may need to uh, you know, interact or, or do something to process that data the way they need to see it. So do you kind of have a, a zero trust unless an X condition is met or Y condition is met? Otherwise it just passes through a machine and uh, apart from the, they could stop it passing through a machine, the, they can't in, um, you know, compromise it or, or do anything about the integrity of it, maybe. So, so kind of, I know it's a difficult one. You have to use suppliers. Uh, you can't do everything on your own. Um, and we all use, well, most of it, we use cloud computing. That's a supplier for a start. Uh, they are traditionally very protective of the security they have in in place, but they do sign up to all the frameworks and uh, certifications, but you're rarely able to go and look and see what goes on in there. So how do you know for sure that your data is secure? Uh, you could, um, you know, code as a service, absolutely fantastic idea, brilliant, clever, but is your code, how can you know your code is being separated from somebody else's code? Uh, and that, well, that leads me on to something else, but we won't go into. Um, uh, uh, vulnerable libraries shared across millions of applications, but never mind. <laughs> Thanks for that, Rob and Holly. Uh, Cyber Essentials could be considered in the same category entirely as a supplier security questionnaire. Uh, and it had the same problems. They've gone through the same processes. So if you think of Cyber Essentials when it was very new, one of the things that assumptions that it made was you would be using antivirus. And now in the most recent version, they've entirely modified that. And it's now antivirus or application whitelisting or application sandboxing. So they have through that process addressed the fact that we shouldn't have this problem that I mentioned earlier of assuming the protection that somebody has in place. So uh, Cyber Essentials sell for the same the same trend. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily uh, pro Cyber Essentials <laughs> in this context. I just wanted to point out that all you're effectively doing is changing who is writing the Excel spreadsheet, and it's probably going to have the same problems. Yeah, and it's Cyber Essentials. It does get reviewed and updated uh, far more than than other standards. But again, its uh, its focus is on cyber. So. Uh, and it's something I've always said you know, when, when assessing clients is that you can have all the defenses in the world online, but if I can walk into your building, pick up your server and walk out with it, none of those are going to stop me. So having a, having a, a, 
a standard or framework which addressed the full range of security controls and not just the cyber controls, I think is something that will be needed. So maybe something Cyber Essentials, um, I could say plus, but of course we use that, Cyber Essentials Extra or something like that, that increases the scope and uh, in, and addresses what's everything that's needed, but does evolve quickly to keep up with the changes in technology. Brilliant. And Nick? Yeah, just just to finish, um, you know, I think all of these all of these things, like you know, the supplier questionnaires and cyber essentials, are great. But until until the expectations change, until we can, I can come along and I can contract with one of you, and I have a, a level of expectation that you're just going to get on and do that. I think we've got to almost get to that point where it's not being chased by a, a regulation, but but being the bar has been lifted, and we're all at that basic level. Um, you know, and now again. That sounds wonderful and, and futuristic, but we've got it. We've got to change the mentality there. It's, there's got to be more collaboration and 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 more trust and more shared expectation to to really be successful here. So great, thanks, guys. Yeah, and Rob. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that uh, sharing sharing uh, details about hacks or attacks and and exploitations that you have. There are still companies out there that are hacked and hit by ransomware, for example, and they won't tell anyone. They don't tell their clients. They try not to tell their staff. They, they just hide from it. And that does not help anyone at all. It's not the fact that you've been attacked. It's, it's how you deal with it. And hiding behind, uh, hiding behind it, pretending that it never happened and it doesn't exist is really not, uh, not helping anyone at all. Absolutely. And we'll end with Nick. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps the, um, the current, uh, prosecutions going on at Uber might change some of that. We, we might be a little bit keen to um, stick our hands up when, when those things happen. Yeah, thank you. Yep. Absolutely. So yeah, brilliant insights there. Uh, hopefully you've all enjoyed today's conversation. I'd like to thank each one of you for joining me today outside of your very busy schedules to come together and have a great conversation around such an important topic for most businesses as they look to grow. We'll leave it there for now. This has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. Thank you for listening.